you are indescribable, you are amazing, you are unfathomable in your greatness and in your majesty. Your word calls us to rejoice in you, the majestic one, and we want to do that. And we know, however, that on our own, in our own strength, by our own abilities, we could never rise to that level of seeing you in all of your holiness. We require your assistance, your grace. We need you, Spirit of God, whose ministry it is to bring glory to the Son, to the glory of the Father, that you would fulfill that ministry in our hearts this morning and lift us up to see truly the amazing and indescribable worth and glory of your greatness, particularly as it's revealed in the Son, who's reconciled us to the Father. And even this morning as we consider the matter of prayer, would you encourage our hearts with the great resources that you have laid out before us, the great resources of yourself that you desire to give to us, that you desire to, for us to lay hold of. May we have the faith to do that, and may we be encouraged and instructed by your word in doing that this morning. And may we know increasingly the experience of your power and your mercy and your grace through Christ in our lives. We ask these things of you in the name of the matchless one with whom we are in union, who has released us from our sin and brought us into his heavenly kingdom. Amen. Well, as we begin this new year, 2015, uh, together, and as we together long to see Christ glorified in our lives, as we long, hopefully, together to know an increasing communion with Christ our Savior, with God our Father in the Spirit, as we want to together grow in grace uh, and grow in seeing the power of God in our lives, we're going then to take a couple of weeks to discuss the very thing that God has given, the very privilege that God has given us so that we might know those realities, that is the privilege of prayer, the privilege of coming to Him in prayer. Indeed, prayer is one of the great privileges that Christ has purchased for us at the cross, the access to the Father, access through Him by the Spirit to the presence of God, access to what He Himself describes as the throne of grace, access to the very One who supplies us with everything that we need for life and for godliness. That is what we have in the privilege of prayer. Let me read to you a poem by William Cooper, a man of years ago, who spoke of prayer in this way. What various hindrances we meet in coming to meet, in coming to the mercy seat, yet who that knows the worth of prayer but wishes to be often there? Prayer makes the darkened cloud withdraw. Prayer climbs the ladder that Jacob saw, gives exercise to faith and love, and brings every blessing from above. Restraining prayer, we cease to fight. Prayer makes the Christian's armor bright, and Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. End quote. Such is the privilege and the power and the blessing and the encouragement of prayer. 
Now, prayer then is foundational for laying hold of God's grace and to our relationship with Him. Prayer is foundational to our spiritual strength, to our spiritual joy, and to our usefulness to our King and to our God. Prayer is essential to our growth and holiness, and yet too often we know the reality more commonly that is expressed by the hymn writer who said, Oh, what peace we often forfeit, and oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. In fact, it could be said that neglect of prayer, neglect of biblical, vibrant faith prayer, is the cause for much of our spiritual immaturity, our needless pain and trials, and our lack of usefulness in the kingdom of God. Moreover, it has been said by another saint of old, Robert Murray McShane, that what a man is alone on his knees before God, that he is and no more. Indeed, our prayer life, both in its fervency, its persistence, its intensity, is a measure of who we are before God spiritually. Spiritually. Now, if these things are true of us individually, they're also true of us corporately as the gathered church. And in fact, many of you feel this way, and the few questionnaires that we have received, this is also a reminder if you haven't turned one in to do so, but in the few that we have received, maybe dozen or so, one of the consistent things that has been mentioned, I, I believe on almost every one, I don't, can't remember an exception, has been the desire for more prayer corporately as a church. There is a sense of the need as a body of believers that we have gathered in this room to go before the God of the universe, the God who has saved us and redeemed us, together in prayer. And so that is something that we are going to address in the years ahead. And indeed, we've tried to address it in the past, but we will be persistent to do so again in the future. Prayer then is essential to the life of the believer and the church. And that's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and you can go ahead and turn there, Matthew 5 through 7, that's why Jesus has already spent a significant amount of time on the matter of prayer in the sermon. Now I'll go back and remind you of a couple of these things. We've covered it. I checked uh, to see when we looked at this last, and it was about four and a half years ago, so I'm going to assume you don't remember everything. Uh, Neither do I. So let's go back and just be reminded of what are some of the things that Jesus tells us about prayer and the priority that he makes of it. Well, the most significant introduction he gives to us is in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And there he deals with the matter of the sincerity of prayer. The sincerity of prayer that we pray as God's children and we pray before God's God's face in his presence alone. And then he gives us in verses 9 through 12 a model or a pattern of prayer. Indeed, it's not wrong to repeat those words, but what Jesus is saying is much, much more than that. He is saying this is to be the paradigm of our prayers as believers in Christ, as those who have God as our Father in truth. It is to follow this pattern. It is to have these priorities. And then he, in our passage that we'll look at this morning verses 7 through 12, again takes us to the matter of prayer directly. And he addresses the matter, the issue of persistence and our motivation in prayer, which, as we will see more next week, comes primarily from our view of God, our view of the nature and the character of God. But Jesus has given us every encouragement to pray. 
Indeed, as we read his word, we realize that God himself is inviting us to lay a hold of him in prayer and to lay a hold of all that he is for us in Christ in prayer. That indescribable God that we just sang of is the one who wants us to come to him. He is the one listening to us who desires to answer us in prayer and he is good. So it's to this matter of prayer that the Lord will direct our attention this morning. And in these verses 7 through 12, we're going to see two encouragements to pray and one command that we are to obey. We will get to the first encouragement, maybe the second encouragement uh, this morning and then finish up next week. But to begin, let's read our passage all the way through. So we'll begin in verse 7 and read down to verse 12 of Matthew chapter 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more Will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask Him? In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Now before we begin in verse 7, we must first answer the question, how does this section relate to the previous section? In other words, how do verses 7 through 12 relate to verses 1 through 6. And I think the simplest answer to that, the simplest connection is this, is that to understand in light of the serious indictment that Jesus has just given against those who are unholy and the command that he has just given to not throw our pearls before swine, before the unworthy, he opens up then to us the privilege of going to the Father in prayer for discernment and wisdom and how to apply this to our lives. In other words, we're not left to figure these things out alone. And there is a sense then in which Jesus is laying before them and before us the encouragement of prayer to be aware of our resources that we have in Christ to fulfill His commands. There is a sense here in which He is also calling us to go to God in prayer and to recognize the logs that are in our own eyes and have the wisdom of how to take the splinters out of others. He's opening up to us the privileges of prayer to know the righteousness also of the kingdom, to know the king of the kingdom. He is opening up to us the privilege of knowing the resources of grace then that are in God to fulfill everything that he's laid before us. So in light of these great realities, he lays in magnificent and short teaching on prayer the magnificent privileges that we have as those who know God as Father. So let's note then two encouragements to pray. Two encouragements to pray. And the first is found in verse 7, which we just read. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. The first encouragement then is this, that God promises to answer those who pursue Him. God promises to answer those who pursue Him. Let's notice first under that then that God commands us to pursue Him wholeheartedly. 
That is what he's doing here in this opening verse. He's commanding us to pursue him wholeheartedly. And I want to begin then by making three simple observations from the text. First, notice that each of these terms are imperatives. Ask, seek, and knock. That is, they are commands. God is telling you and me to do this. Now, there are approximately 48 commands or imperatives in the sermon alone. And this is what we would expect from Jesus. For as they acknowledged at the end of the sermon, He is one who is teaching them not as their scribes, but as one with authority. And so when God gives us a command, and when Jesus gives us a command, it's something that we are to respond to in obedience. And so it is here. Ask is a term that is often used in context of an inferior to a superior. It's not always used that way, but very commonly it is used that way. And I think that's how it is being used here, most likely. And it has inherent in it the concept of humility. To ask is to recognize our need, a sense of dependence. There is an asking, a sense of someone who has what another can give, of the lesser to the greater, the weaker to the stronger. To seek, then, is to pursue diligently, and the command to knock is to knock at the doors of heaven and of grace. An old commentator, Matthew Henry, I think captured it well when he said this, Sin has shut and barred the door against us. By prayer we knock, Lord, Lord, open up to us. And I think that it's interesting to observe, along with this first point, that God has to command us to pray, that He has to command us to pray. And it's interesting because prayer is a means of blessing. It is a means of God wanting to pour out His favor and His mercy in our lives, and yet it is something that He needs to command us to do. If you're hungry, nobody has to command you to go and get something to eat, something that sounds appealing. If you're tired, nobody has to tell you to go to bed to get some sleep. And yet, God has to command us because of our natural fleshliness and indolence to come to Him and to pray. And yet, it is in that command that He is also opening up to us, again, the great privileges of our salvation, which is to have access to Him and to know the privileges of grace that we have in Christ and can lay hold of by prayer. A second observation then is this. The first is that they are commands. The second is this, that the form of the verbs you're well familiar with speaks of continuous action, of persistence, of consistency. Some translations even have keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. They either have that in the translation or they have it in a note in the margin. And that well captures the idea of what Jesus is saying. And so he's dealing here with an issue of persistence, of being persistent. In other words, he's saying ask not one time, but ask continually, ask consistently. Now this is not the meaningless repetition that he's already addressed Back in verse 7 of chapter 6 that he chides the Gentiles for doing. Don't go to God. We're not to with meaningless repetition. But that's not what he's dealing with here. He's dealing here rather with faithful persistence. He's not saying ask continually simply so you and I can use a lot of words. But what he's dealing with is a tenacity of heart. Of being resolved to receive from God all that he has held up out to us. It is a persevering and unwavering, a resolute heart. 
It's like the friend of Luke chapter 11, which is a parallel passage. And just look at that briefly, if you would. Luke chapter 11, Jesus gives a parallel or a parable that is parallel uh, to our passage here. He says in Luke chapter 11, in this parable, or he tells about one who was needing something that he didn't have. And so in verse 5, Jesus says, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from journey and I have nothing to set before him. That was a bad position. Hospitality was an essential component of their culture. It was unheard of to think of somebody who would come to your home and you would not have provisions to refresh them, give them protection and a place to rest. And yet this person finds himself in this situation. And so he goes to a neighbor, to one who is a friend, and he knocks at his door, on his door at the most inopportune time, but he is desperate. Therefore, in verse 7, he says, or it says, and then from inside, he answers, the friend does, and says, do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything implied. I tell you, Jesus says, as he comments on this, even though he will not get up and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now, the motive at that point may be something less than virtuous. It might amount to no more than annoyance and wanting to get back to sleep. But the point stands that Jesus is making that because of his persistence, he gets what he desires from his friend. And that connects then what Jesus is teaching us here. That we are to go to God asking, seeking, and knocking, and we are to be persistent, unwavering, resolute, in doing so, and God is commanding us to do that. I would imagine that some have even had those passing thoughts who have thought, I don't want to annoy God, I don't want to bug Him or pester Him by repeatedly going with the same thing, but that is a wrong thought and goes against what Jesus is teaching us here. We are to ask repeatedly, we are to seek it, in other words, pursue it from God as though we really want it. As though you ardently desire the thing that you're after. As though it is truly a priority in your life. And we are to knock consistently. Keep knocking. Keep knocking. Knocking till you have awakened everyone in the house. And the gate is opened. Now it's interesting. Jesus uses that same term in Revelation 3.20. And yet there it is Jesus who knocks. The risen Lord on the door of the disobedient church at Laodicea. Eventually inviting, essentially inviting them to repentance. But here it is the Lord that commands us to knock at His door, to bring the desires of our hearts before Him. Now I have asked someone on occasion, and I'm sure that you may have had this experience, about their prayer life. And I have heard on occasion uh, that someone will say, well, I pray before every meal. That's my prayer life. I pray before every meal. I would say that that is good. We should pray before every meal and express our gratitude to God for what He has provided for us. But that doesn't even come close to what Jesus is commanding here. He's not simply talking about praying before meals. He's not talking about the occasional thought of God. And He's not talking about the sporadic prayer that we give to God every now and then throughout the day or throughout the week. And even less is He talking about the prayers that only come when there is an acute sense of desperation. That's not what He's talking about. 
He's talking about being persistent and passionate and wholehearted in our pursuit of God in prayer. It is along the lines of what Paul would say later in 1 Thessalonians 5 that we are to pray without ceasing. And this kind of prayer is indeed the fruit of regeneration. It marks the possession of eternal life, of spiritual life, of God's life within us, of the Holy Spirit working in us, prompting us, moving us, motivating us to go to God in prayer. Prayer, as you have heard, is like breathing the air of heaven. As those who are children of God, we feel the necessity then to go to Him for everything and to go to Him in prayer. Now, corollary to this, this idea of persistence, I want to note here, is the reality that God sometimes delays His answers, hence the need for persistence. Sometimes He takes us, He makes us wait, which is why we need to persevere. Now, of course, there are three options of God in how He answers our prayers. I can gather that you might know them. The first is he may answer yes. The second is he may answer no. And the third is he may answer yes, but wait, wait a while. Any of those are options of God. And God does sometimes give us our request immediately. As a matter of fact, there's a glorious picture of how God responds to our prayers, particularly in the millennial kingdom, in Isaiah 65, 24. The prophet says this, It will come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are speaking, I will hear. There is this immediacy to God providing the desires and the wants of his children, sometimes even before they ask him. And we've known that, I'm sure, all of us at times in our life. There is an immediacy sometimes before we even ask him. He gives us the thing we've been thinking about. And sometimes almost immediately that we pray, he gives us the thing that we have asked for. And those are great encouragements to our faith. They are delights when God does that for us. But we might also confess that That is not necessarily the norm. That is not necessarily how he always deals with his children. God often withholds the things that we seek at first. In other words, he does not give it to us immediately. We ask and then we wait. And it seems the answer is long in coming. And sometimes it seems as though the answer may never come. And he requires us then to persevere and to be persistent. Now why does he do that? Well, we can't know everything that God is doing in those situations. We don't know the eternal mind of God, and there may be things that are only discovered uh, later in life or never. But we can at least say four things that He is doing when He makes us wait. He's increasing our faith. He's teaching us to rely on His Word and His character, not our wisdom, to trust in the Lord with all of our heart, not lean on our own understanding of why He's doing what He's doing. James 1 tells us that these trials sometimes, which can include having to wait on God in prayer, that He is increasing our perseverance. He teaches us then, secondly, perseverance, to prove our character and the sincerity of our request. In Romans 5, he says that when we have tribulations, when we have trials, that those are produced in us proven character. How do they produce proven character? Because as we persevere faithfully through them, our character is shown to be 
something that's being molded and shaped by the Spirit of God who pours out the love of God in our hearts. And it is in that then that we increase in our hope. A third reason he makes us wait sometimes is to grow us in humility. The longer we wait, the more we're aware of our own weakness and our dependence and our lack of what it is that we so desire from God. He also does it at times to prepare our hearts, to make us ready to receive the thing we've requested. Sometimes he wants us to wait simply because our hearts aren't ready for it at that moment. I think an illustration of this might be Joseph. God had promised Joseph great things in a dream. Indeed, he had all of his brothers, even his father, bowing down to him. But I gather that Joseph, at that tender young age, was not yet at a place of maturity to receive what God had planned for him in the future. And so he put him through various trials. He was sold by his brothers. He was put into slavery. He was lied against and cast into prison. He was often forgotten and left in miserable conditions. And yet, at a time ordained and planned by God, he did bring about the plan that he had for Joseph's life. He did bring about the thing that he promised, but it was after much, much suffering. And I would gather and think it's safe to say that Joseph was more prepared as a man of God to fulfill what God had ordained for him to fulfill because God made him wait. God made him persevere. God made him and shaped him and molded him to be the man that he wanted him to be at that time. I think we see the same thing in the life of David. David was promised the throne of Israel. He was promised to be king. But he spent years of his life running and hiding in the wilderness of Israel or the land of Judah because of God making him wait to receive that promise. He was hiding in caves in fear for his life. But I would again gather that David was at the end of that more prepared to be the king that God had molded him to be over his people. And God sometimes does that in our life. He makes us wait because in that waiting, He's molding us and shaping us. And we have to trust that. A third observation is this. First is that they are commands, that we are to be persistent. And third is this, that there is a progressive intensity to the commands. From asking to the more active seeking and to the more aggressive knocking. One has said it like this, and I think it comes near to what the Lord is saying here. He said this, quote, A child, if his mother is near and visible, ask. If she is neither, he seeks. While she is inaccessible in her room, he knocks. There is an increasing intensity to the desire and the level at which we pursue the thing that we want from God. And the idea through it all is don't give up, but we must press on in faith. God intends for us and calls us not to be passive in our walk with Him, but to be active, to be diligent in our prayer life. So how is your prayer life? How is it? How much time do you spend in prayer compared to other activities in your life? That's usually a way to produce conviction in someone because we woefully lack, I would say, all of us in this room need to improve in prayer. But it is something that you need to ask yourself. How often do you go to prayer when you're facing trials? And do you spend more time talking to other people about trials than you do to God who created you and sustained you and redeemed you? Our answers to these questions really belie. They, they expose what we think about God and how we are resting in Him alone in our life. 
But let's move on. Let's note secondly then, under this first point, that God delights in granting the request of those who pursue Him. He commands us to pursue Him wholeheartedly, and He delights in giving us our request. Look at verses, again, 7 through 8. He says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. Everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now notice the interplay there between the present and the future tense. You ask, and then you will receive. You seek, and then you will find. You knock, and then it will be opened to you. In other words, God requires us first to come to Him before He's going to act on our behalf. The basic point, however, is that God answers prayer. And God uses the means of our prayers to fulfill His will and accomplish His purposes in our life. It's right to say then that prayer moves the hand of God. And we see this throughout Scripture. Now, we could spend mornings just looking at the example. It's all the way from Genesis to Revelation. But let me point out to you just a few examples of this. How God, how God has designed prayer to be a means of His accomplishing His ends. In Genesis chapter 20, you remember... Abraham's distrust of God when he wanted to call, at that point, Sarai, his wife, his sister, so that he would not be put to death or mistreated by kings who would want to take her as their wife and would need to do that, would put Abraham to death. So Abraham said, just tell him you're my brother. Well, God exposed Abraham and his lie and rather humiliatingly at that, at the, is rebuked even by a pagan king. But nonetheless, God uh, addressed the situation by causing affliction in the king's life. And he tells him what the real situation is. And then God says to this king, Now therefore, in verse 7 of Genesis 20, Restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. He pray, he will pray for you, and you will live. God is holding out then a situation in which it requires prayer for God to move. God didn't just say, restore him, and you will live. But he says, restore him, and he will pray for you, and you will live. And so that is, in fact, what we see happen in verse 17. It says, Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids, and they bore children. God was going to accomplish what he was going to do, and yet he required that Abraham pray. He didn't do it apart from the prayer of his servant. If you're already there, you could look at another example in Genesis chapter 24. In Genesis chapter 24, the servant of Isaac is going, or the servant uh, is going to look for a bride for Isaac, and he goes, and along his way, he gives God, or he lifts up to God a prayer in verse 12, and he says, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw. Now may it be that the girl whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink, and who answers drink, and I will water your camels also, may she, may she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. And indeed, 
that very situation happened in response to his prayer. And the man knew that. The servant knew that. So in verse 27, he gives God thanks. And he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. And for, as for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brother. And then he repeats the whole situation to Laban and his family in verse 45. The point is, is that here was a man in need, he prayed, God answered his prayer, and the response was that he was able to give glory to God as he experienced God's hand moving in that situation. And those examples could repeat it over and over and over and over. But the point is that in each of these cases, God accomplished his purposes through the prayers of his people. Now, some say that all prayer really does is align our hearts with God's heart, but does not really affect what He does in our life. So the answer then, particularly for those hyper-Calvinists, those who take the sovereignty of God beyond God's own uh, instructions in Scripture, and and therefore uh, justify that for doing nothing or for being lazy, for not evangelizing, for not working hard and being diligent in their life, we would reject that. And so some, do, however, will say, well, because God is sovereign, God will do what He's going to do anyway, whether I pray or not. God's going to do what He's going to do. Well, the answer to that, in one sense, that is true. I mean, our hearts are aligned with God's when we pray, and very often the very point of prayer is that our perspective is brought in line with God's perspective. And that is the very thing that he's accomplishing by causing us to come to him in prayer. And it is also true that our prayers do not change his ultimate sovereign or decreative will by which he has ordained all things that will come to pass for his own honor and glory. God's plan will not fail. He has decreed certain things to happen and they will come to pass no matter what. So those things are true to a level. But it's also true to say and right to say that prayer moves the hand of God as the previous illustrations show, which is behind what the Lord is teaching here. And James himself says there's things that you do not have because you do not ask. Yes, God is sovereign and yes, he will accomplish his will, but that will also includes in some way our prayers, our prayers. And we can't answer every question regarding the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, the decree of God and the prayers of men, but somehow they work together. Somehow they do. And it can rightly be said that there are things that we do not receive because we do not pray and things we do receive because we do pray. And all of that works in God's sovereign plan. This is a paradox and not a contradiction. Scripture clearly states that God is sovereign over all things and accomplishes His will down to the details, but He also tells us to pray to receive things from God. Indeed, the Father knows what we need before we ask Him, as Jesus reminded us back in chapter 6, but God has ordained the means as well as the end. That is included in his sovereignty, the means of how we obtain those things that God knows we already need, and it is by going to him in prayer. And there really isn't much we can say beyond that. We must simply stick to the statements of Scripture and what the Lord is teaching here. The one who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open. God answers prayer. It's a matter of us believing that and taking God at his word. 
believing it by faith and responding appropriately. To have a fatalistic attitude toward prayer, to go, I prayed and it doesn't work. I've asked God and he hasn't given it. Or it doesn't matter if I pray because God is sovereign and he's going to do what he's going to do. That is an unbiblical attitude and it's not true. And it's a denial of what the Lord is teaching in this passage, which is so wonderful. Prayer then is also an expression of faith. Hebrews reminds us that he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And Jesus himself said, anything you ask in prayer, believing, trusting in God. We must believe that God is both able and that he is willing. And this is a strong encouragement. For all would lose heart if they thought their efforts were in vain. If we thought it made no difference at all, then we would be discouraged from going to God in prayer. But to know that the end of persistence and the fruit of our labor and the result of prayer is to gain the thing asked for, that's a tremendous, tremendous encouragement. And that is encouragement to press on. And you know, God gives us those times of immediate answers to prayer to encourage us in those times when it seems that we've been forgotten and set aside. Let me remind you of just one example of this in the Psalms. Again, many could be produced. But in Psalm 42, the psalmist is in despair. He says, why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. And then he says, O my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and from the peaks of Hermon and from Mount Mazar. In other words, I remember you from times of previous blessing and previous displays of your strength. And that's how it is often with us. We must go to God in prayer, believing, and oftentimes in those times of waiting and where we can battle with doubts, remember that God is faithful and remember those times that God has acted so graciously on our behalf. If someone is always defeated or expects to be defeated, then there's little motivation to press on. But we have tasted the joy of victory, the pleasure of discovery before. We have had times where God has brought us out of darkness And brought us into the light where he's taken us out of the struggle with anxiety and brought us to a place of confidence and hope. And we need to lay hold of those truths and we need to remember them so we can be encouraged to press on in prayer. Let's notice next then that God satisfies those who are pursuing the right things. What things then are we to ask for? What are we to ask for? What exactly are the things that God promises to give to those who ask? If we're going to obey the Lord here, it's important to know what things we should be asking from Him, seeking from Him, and knocking on the door to receive from Him. Well, the context would emphasize that God's people are to seek Him, as we mentioned earlier, for wisdom in the matter of judging and help in loving one another. And that is certainly key. But the promise that He gives us, though that is the context and probably the immediate application, is much broader than that. His teaching here on prayer is more general to that and is not limited to only those one or two items. He's calling us here to bring everything to Him in prayer. And something that he repeats often throughout the Gospels and in the Epistles. And there really is no limitation on prayer here. Let me remind you of just one passage in 1 John chapter 5. I don't turn there, but he says this. This is the confidence which we have before him. That if we ask anything according to his will, according to his will, 
His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from Him. In other words, this is an incredible promise to us regarding prayer. If there's any problem with our prayers, it's not that we ask too much, but it's that it's very often we ask too little and expect too little from God. That being said, however, God has put some qualifiers on our prayers, which you probably noticed from the last verse. First is that they are to be done with an eye towards God's glory. How did he begin the very model prayer that he gave us? Father, hallowed be your name. In other words, increase the holiness of your name in my own affections and in my own life and in my own thinking and in my own mind. That is the very beginning of proper prayer, that that is a desire that we seek from God. In John 14, 13, Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, that the Father may be glorified. And as we read in 1 John, it is that we ask according to his will. That is consistent with his will, his character, and his holiness in Christ as revealed in Scripture. We say and know the verse, do all to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. And that certainly includes prayer. That when we pray, it is to be ultimately to the glory of God. In fact, one of the single greatest hindrances to our prayers is that we ask with a view towards self and not with a singular eye to the glory of God. James reminds us, James 4.3, You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now this cuts very deep and is too often true of our own prayers. I think it's a lot truer of our prayers than we even realize oftentimes. How do we know then whether we're guilty of this? How do we know whether we're guilty of asking with an eye more towards self than to the glory of God? Well, let me suggest to you at least two questions that we can ask ourselves. Two questions that we can ask ourselves. Maybe you could add more, but I'm going to give you these two. First, can you worship God and delight in Him the same even if you don't receive the thing that you're asking for? Can you delight in God and worship Him the same even if you don't receive the thing that you're asking for? Or does it produce doubt, discouragement, and distrust in God? If it does, then that means that our motives were amiss, that there was something sinful, there was something corrupt in them, and that corruption is being exposed as God withholds that request and reveals to us our own hearts. Secondly, is another question. Would we have as much joy in the thing that we've asked from God if He gave it to us, whether it came with God's glory and His nearness or not? Would we have the same amount of joy and pleasure if He gave us that without also a sense of His being glorified in it and His nearness coming along with it? If you knew even that this wasn't necessarily going to glorify God, but you wanted it so badly anyway, would you still want it? Indeed, this secret desire to please self or to place self at the center can even corrupt prayer for what are otherwise righteous things. For otherwise righteous things. Commenting on this in relation to Christian service, D.A. Carson, in a book that I would highly recommend it and have done to some individually, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, in that book he says this on this point. 
He says, our pilgrimage as Christians needs, need not be very far advanced before we ruefully recognize that even our best service motivated by the highest zeal is regularly laced with large doses of vulgar self-interest, end quote. And those who know Christ and walk with Him testify that this is true. So we must be diligent, painfully ruthless with our hearts and our motives in prayer. And particularly when it's something that we've long been seeking God for and waiting for. Now with that in mind, I'm going to end with this. Two prerequisites to prayer then and three general areas in which we should pray. And I'll go through these rather quickly. The first of the two prerequisites is this. Our prayers should be primarily for the spiritual and not for the temporal. Our prayers should be primarily for the temporal and not, or for the spiritual and not for the temporal. Now, God did teach us to pray in verse 11 of chapter 6 for our daily bread. But that came, as I mentioned earlier, after He taught us to pray for God's holiness to be manifested, for His kingdom to come, and for His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is not as though He would not give us bread if we didn't ask. He gives us things all the time that we don't ask for and provides for us all the time for things we don't specifically take to Him. But it is that His children are to express their dependence upon Him. We are to express our constant need for Him to supply all things. And in doing so, we acknowledge His glory, that He alone is Creator, that He's ruler, and that He is provider of all things for His children. So even in the temporal, in that case, there is a focus on the eternal and the spiritual significance behind the request on God's goodness and His character and His glory. Now, in other things, God cares about broken legs. God cares about the sickness that we endure. He cares about the general difficulties of life from the rather slight to the more serious and grievous difficulties of life. And it's not wrong to pray for those things and even to pray for relief from those things. But we need to quickly get past such superficial and external and earthly concerns to focus on the greater and the more central and important realities. In other words, as Christians, our prayers should not simply be horizontal. That they should reach up to God. They should reflect a transcendent and eternal realities. To realize God's purposes run far deeper than our earthly comfort. For example... It's not wrong to pray for a broken leg, but we look beyond that to pray for God's name to be glorified maybe in our attitude of how we deal with the discomfort of a broken leg or lost work or lost opportunities. We pray for God to sustain us and use our time wisely, maybe through prayer or some ministry of encouragement as we lay there incapacitated with a broken leg. That's praying with a spiritual mindedness rather than simply God heal my broken leg quickly or Aunt Susie or so on. It is that we, in the midst of it, want God's name to be honored. We want our attitudes to be righteous. Christ is the supreme example of this in his prayer in the garden. He prayed that this cup could pass, but ultimately he submitted to the will of God. Paul provides us another example. Let me remind you of this one briefly. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You're familiar uh, with this passage of Scripture. In verse 7, Paul tells us that he had a thorn in the flesh. That he had a thorn in the flesh. 
and that it was something that came from God to keep him from exalting himself, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Again, he says, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Three times he came to the Lord and asked that God would take this situation away. Take this thorn, this difficulty away from him. And what was God's answer? God's answer was no. In other words, no, you need this difficulty, Paul. This is good for you. He says in verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And Paul's response to that wasn't, Come on, God, really? His response was, Most gladly, therefore, I will boast, rather, about my weakness, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. In other words, Paul had a difficult situation, something that was distressing to him, that was a great burden to him. God said, no, Paul, I'm not going to remove this difficulty. And Paul, because he was spiritually minded, said, well, that's good then. I will gladly receive this difficulty because what God is accomplishing through that in my life is much greater than if that thing were simply removed. He had an eternal mindset. He knew that God was sanctifying him and bringing glory into his life and increasing or bringing the glory of God, increasing the glory of God in his life and increasing his joy and spiritual strength through it. Very often, I imagine we moan and complain and grumble over God's difficult providences in our life and the trials we endure, rather than looking beyond that, as Paul gives us an example here, to see what is the spiritual good that he is accomplishing in our life. That's praying spiritually. That's praying spiritually and with an eternal mindset. Many examples could be given, but let me give you this, an anonymous poem that was written that... Uh, captures this idea. It goes like this. I ask the Lord that I may grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. I thought that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, He made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry power of hell assault my soul in every part. Lord, why is this, I trembling cried? Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may seek thy all in me, end quote. That is praying with a spiritual mindset. That's viewing the difficulties of life in the great, from the lens of the greater purpose of what God is accomplishing in us and conforming us to the image of Christ. So we need to pray with a mindset on eternal things and not simply temporal things. Indeed, sometimes God's waits or withhold that he might increase our passionate pursuit of him and a deeper experience of his grace. Secondly, our prayers then should be God-centered. They should be, have an eternal mindset and they should be God-centered. 
Again, Jesus has already addressed this in the sermon. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. He says just a few verses above where we are in Matthew chapter 7, that we are in verses, chapter 6, verses 33 through 34, that we are to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. That is to be what marks the priorities in our life. His kingdom and His righteousness. And that is then to be reflected in our prayers and it will be reflected in His prayer, our prayers. Think, if you could, even for a moment, of your prayer life over this last week. What are the things that you have sought from God? What are the things that you have sought from God? Have your prayers displayed an eternal mindset or are they totally rooted and grounded and anchored into the things of this world? Have they been God-centered or have they been more self-centered? Have they reflected that we are seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness or our own will and comfort? God's kingdom is not to be thought of apart from the King. It is Christ alone when He says seek the kingdom and it's also Christ Himself that we are to be seeking. We are to love righteousness, to love His kingdom and to love Him supremely. Now let me give an antithesis to this, a a contrast in verse 21. Jesus says that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And God will say, I never knew you. Now I use that as an example for this. Certainly they sought those things in prayer. Some of those that they prayed to God that he would cast out the demons and they offered up some kind of prayer to God that he would perform a miracle. And yet, as they're seeking these seemingly good things, they were in fact seeking them with a wrong heart. And that will be tragically exposed on the day of judgment. They may have thought they were asking, seeking, and knocking for the display of God's power for his glory, but instead they were really self-motivated They were not expressions of love for Christ and His glory. We are not to seek just the extraordinary examples of God's power in our life for our own advancement, but we are to seek God Himself in prayer. Let me give you one example of this briefly. I don't want to pass it by. In Jeremiah 29, verse 12 through 13. Just listen to it, and I'll read it. He says this, And right after he gives this glorious promise in verse 11 to his people. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity. To give you a future and a hope. And looking forward to this time. He says this. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Could you pick out a key word in those two verses? What might it be? Me. God is saying me. Listen to what he's saying. You'll call upon me. You'll pray to me. You'll seek me. And you'll search for me. And you will be found by me. You will find me. God is the one that we are to seek in prayer. We are to long after His nearness, after His glory, and hunger for the knowledge 
of Him. I would ask again to remind us of the question, could we be as satisfied with God's blessing if there was no communion with God in them and no nearness to God in them? If He just gave us everything we want? If that is the case for us, then we can say that our hearts are not right before God. And we need to correct that through repentance. The repentance that Pastor Reardon spoke of this morning. Now we are not then just pursuing His blessings, but Him. Let me jump down then, after these priorities, to note then three things, three categories, general things that we are to pray for. With these two priorities in mind, the eternal, not the temporal, God-centered, not self-centered, what is it that we should be praying for? Let me give you three. And I'm going to try to do this in about two minutes. Maybe we'll mention them again next week. The first is salvation. 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 In fact, some see this as the Lord's primary point in Matthew 7, 7. They would understand that He is here giving an invitation to salvation to enter into the kingdom. And an invitation that's going to be continued then in chapters, verse, or verses 13 through 14 when He says to enter through the narrow gate. And that is possible, but not at all what I think the Lord is emphasizing here the priority. He's speaking to those who are already identifying themselves as in the kingdom. Those who are already calling God their Father. However, the reality is not at all opposed to what the Lord is saying. It is certainly, I think, included in what He is saying here. Some are realizing as they're hearing the Lord teach the Sermon on the Mount that they are, in fact, not in the kingdom. That they are not displaying this kind of righteousness that he is saying marks one who knows the grace of God. He told them in verse 520 that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And we can assume that many among those crowds did not have a righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees. That they were influenced by their teaching and following in their same view of religion that they were promoting. And again, we just read that in verse 21, that many are going to realize that they might be among those who thought they were in the kingdom, but in fact weren't because they did not display the kind of righteousness that the Lord lays before us in the Sermon on the Mount. And so, He is certainly including those in here to those who realize they're not in the kingdom, that you can seek the kingdom from God. You can seek the kingdom from the Father. You can ask and it will be given to you. You can seek and you can knock and it will be opened to you. This is the same Lord who will later say, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And He is inviting us to lay a hold of that. He is inviting those who aren't in the kingdom to lay a hold of that. And God has ordained that prayer is the very front door of salvation. It's the very beginning point of salvation. And it would begin by asking and seeking and knocking and wanting this from God. Romans 10 says this, Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God has ordained that no one will be saved apart from prayer. Nobody. Prayer is the very beginning of our calling out to God, seeking Him for eternal life. Do you want your sins forgiven? Do you want communion with Him? Do you want the hope of heaven? We must ask, we must seek, and we must knock. And He says, it will be open to you. And persistence is the key here. Some may say, I tried all of that and it didn't work. The answer to that is that it's not a magic formula, it's an expression of faith. It's not just saying the key words and it's happening. It is an expression of the heart to God. 
And when it's sincere faith, we don't stop. We don't throw up our hands and go about our lives and say it didn't work. It just didn't work out for me. Rather, when it's true faith, you persevere until you get it like Jacob wrestling at the river. Because knowing him and his grace is the most essential thing in life. And knowing that causes perseverance and to receive that thing from him. And if you feel, though, that you've asked from God for repentance and a hatred of your sin and a desire to be in the kingdom and it's just not happened and you want to throw up your hands and leave, then I would say that is foolish. You must persevere and that's what Jesus is calling us to. Secondly, sanctification. Sanctification. Sometimes we do, don't pray persistently or intensively because we don't have any great burden compelling us, no trial. Nothing that we're really longing for. But as a Christian, we should always be longing to know Christ more and to be more like Him. And we always are burdened with the fact that we don't know Him as we want to and don't reflect His character as we need to and should. And that should burden us and motivate us to pray. Do you pray for that? Do you pray for God to sanctify you? Do you pray for Him to produce in you the fruits of salvation? Do you pray for Him to make you more like Christ? This is the will of God for your life, your sanctification. That is God's will for your life and for my life, is that we would be more like Christ. Jesus notes that a manifestation of having been made righteous is to hunger and thirst for righteousness, and we are certainly to be pursuing that from prayer. And so with a sense of our sinfulness, a humble brokenness and desire to pursue righteousness, we ask and we seek from God. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, There are many who preach about the Lord Jesus to no effect, and we can see why. They've no doctrine of sin. They never convict or convince people of sin. They always hold Christ before men and say that is enough, but it's not enough. For the effect of sin upon us is such that we shall never fly to Christ until we realize that we are paupers, end quote. And those who know Christ and walk with Him have an increasing awareness of our sinfulness that we can do nothing apart from His grace. And a growth in maturity is praying that God would produce these fruits and these graces uh, in us, that we would lay hold of them more. Thirdly then, salvation, sanctification, and the supply. We've dealt with that, but that we look to God to supply us with all good things. Well, we'll pick it up here tomorrow, but let me end with this statement. And He is our Father. He's limitless in the abundance of His goodness, of His willingness and His desire to glorify Himself by supplying our needs and giving of Himself to us. And He calls us here to ask Him, to pursue Him in prayer. And He encourages us by saying, ask it from Him, seek it from Him, and knock. And He more than delights in opening up to us the floodgates of heaven. Let's pray. And we'll end with this prayer uh, because of the time. And let me remind before I pray that we do have fellowship dinner uh, afterwards. So after this prayer, we'll end. Father, we do thank you for this great encouragement that you've given to us to seek you in prayer. We know that we seek you not on our own merits, but on the merits of Christ alone. As Spurgeon once said, we never want to come into your presence without bringing Christ with us. We never could come into your presence without being clothed with the righteousness of your Son, a righteousness that was accomplished for us, a righteousness that was granted to us in the gift of faith and of the Holy Spirit who unites us to Him. We come having received from you the call to come. We come having received from you the promise that you will hear, the promise that you will grant our request. 
with the encouragement to persevere. Oh Lord, how easily we get tired and get discouraged. How easily we lose hope and give in to thoughts of doubt and discouragement. How easily we tend to view you as unwilling, as not being good and full of abundance and wanting to bless us. How easily we give in to those things. Correct our thinking. Correct our thinking by your word. Remind us of the goodness of your character, which we'll look at next week. Remind us of the cross and that there you purchase for us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Expose in our hearts where there's things that are wrong, where we have selfish and sinful motives, where we're looking at uh, our own advantage and not to your glory. And uproot those deep, deep roots of sin and self that so easily bind us and hold us down. And lift us up to the glories of self-denial and trust in you and having a God-centeredness to our prayers. Help us, Lord, and may we as individuals and as a church experience in this year like we have never have before the power of you working in our lives, particularly as we learn to better lay hold of you in prayer. And Lord, for those of here who don't know you, may they hear what you have said, that they can ask from you this grace, that they can seek it from you and knock on the doors of heaven. And in as much as they truly desire forgiveness of their sin, and truly desire to walk with you in humble obedience in life, that you will grant that to them. Father, again, we thank you for your word, for your spirit, for your son, for your grace. And it's in the matchless name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.